0: If you'll find your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, don't be afraid to use the table of contents. I'm right with you. Um, and we, we, I know that, that as we open the Bible together, we're kind of, for, for a lot of us, working into uncharted territory. And I want you to do so bravely and courageously. Now that said, as you make your way to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, I want to, uh, I want to kind of point out where we want to go today. It's a shorter of the chapters we're going to read kind of the end of chapter 3 and then the entirety of chapter 4. And something I always want you to know, we're always doing the best we can, I think, to stretch our attention span for the Bible and for our attention span of sitting under the teaching and, and proclamation and exposition of the Bible. And so, I understand we're going to read a bunch of this, and this is with a specific purpose. No, we won't be able to cover every single thing in here, although I will probably try and I will start talking so fast it won't make sense. So I'll try not to try to say everything, but we want to intentionally kind of corner off some things here, open the Bible, let it speak to us, let it shape us, and then And then this is our practice going forward. And as we do so, what I think you'll find is that if you will even just attend this worship service for the course of our time in Ecclesiastes, you will have read an entire book of the Bible. Just by showing up from now till Easter, you will have covered an entire book of the Bible. That's not a small thing. That's a big deal. And that's a big deal for us. And so I want to begin in Ecclesiastes chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 16 of chapter 3, and spend our time digging into chapter 4. Beginning in verse 16 of chapter 3, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there was nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought, the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both is he who has not been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw... That all toil and all skill in work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. The fool holds his hand, folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people all of whom He led. Yet, those who come later will not rejoice in Him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. I want to unashamedly invite you into despair. I want to admittedly invite you into the kind of despair that That we find when you look for meaning, as this phrase over and over and over again is recurring, under the sun. I want to, if you are presently trying to find contentment, fulfillment, enjoyment, if you are currently trying to find your identity in something apart from God, I want to intentionally invite you into despair over that thing. And point out that it might be the case that the worst possible scenario is not that you don't get that thing you're seeking after, but the worst possible scenario, according to Ecclesiastes, is that you do get it. And you're even more distraught by it. Because in so doing, as we begin to despair of life under the sun, we begin to find joy as we look beyond the sun. And to despair of life on this side of eternity is actually to find joy on the other. So for the last couple of weeks, we've been walking through, at least for four weeks now, the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes simply meaning preacher or teacher or literally gatherer. That word's important for us because in the New Testament, the word ecclesia is the literal called out ones or gathered ones that we find translated as the word Church. Such that now we know that the church is not a place, but it's a people. It is a people called out of the world for God's specific purpose. You see remnants of that in this particular title of this book of the Old Testament. That this is apparently an arrangement, literally a gathering of sentences and wisdom for these people of God. The wisdom of a man by the name of Solomon. Some of it we know for sure probably written by Solomon. Some of it maybe even gathered by an editor or one of his, one of his own you know, servants or one of his own disciples, as it were, most likely as he came to the end of his life. He looks upon it and we find here this morose and awful thing. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, I invited my friend because I said this was going to be good. And here you are telling it about how you're, I mean, you had one shot and you're telling this person how awful and meaningless life is. Man, you're really letting me down. And I would, I would argue, just hang with me, hang with me. I know this pushes against our kind of I would say kind of fleeting and superficial view of happiness. And I want to intentionally, because I love you, rip that little bit of superficial and, and temporary happiness out of your hand and offer to you something much more substantive. For you to consider the possibility that the failure that exists on this part of a broken and fallen world is actually a gift of God that's meant to invite us into a greater and lasting joy. So there's at least two reasons I've been talking about why we're in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is it, two, the, one of two things. The first one, as I get to know more and more of you, I find that many of you and many of the people we know in our city are currently pursuing something. They're currently on their way somewhere else. They are currently pouring their time, energy, money, student loans. Um, you you name, they're, they're pouring these things into something that they want to accomplish. And I want to invite you into consider that the, possi- the possibility that as you pursue those things, they will not satisfy you. They may serve as a great little tool, maybe a little bitty gift that God grants us to enjoy the time that He's granted to us in the world, but I want to push back on you. I want to push back on everyone who tells you that what you need to do is follow your dreams. I want to tell you that it's possible that even if those dreams come true, if you're like Solomon, they may leave you even more distraught. They may leave you in a deeper pit of depression than before when you were praying that those wishes would come true. second thing I think you see here is that I find that if I'm going to be a good pastor and care for your souls, as the Bible commands me to do, I don't have to spend much time preparing you to be happy. Like, I I don't have to spend much time teaching you how to handle life when things are awesome, right? It doesn't take a lot of effort, I don't have to go at great lengths and say, hey, you need to make sure you smile and, 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 be, and be joyful whenever God uh, is, being, you know, is gracious and covering these things and taking care. I, I don't think you need a lot of tips on that. Here's what I think you probably need. You probably need a lot of help to find faith amidst sorrow. You probably need a lot more help finding God's purpose amidst your discontentment. So those are at least two reasons. And now, if we do this right, I believe this ought to sound very repetitive. I believe this ought to get very redundant. I don't want to pound this in your head. This life is not all that there is. This life is vanity. It is meaningless. It is worthless compared to the eternal life that God grants us in Jesus Christ. This life is meaningless that this word that shows up over and over and over again vanity chasing after the wind It's meaningless the thrust of this book is that is that man is offered a life that that is joyful it has some fleeting moments of enjoyment but it is not self-sufficient that there is enough joy maybe to like get you through the day but there is not enough joy in this life apart from god to get you through eternity This is a picture of the entirety of the Bible. We think about, the Bible teaches us that we come from God and we go to God and therefore Solomon reflects on the possibility that that real meaning, real joy can only be found by living along with God. There's a sense in which that eternity, that eternal life has been lost, we see in Genesis chapter 3. And yet there's an eternal covenant that's inaugurated in Genesis chapter 9 by an eternal God according to Psalm 90 verse 2. An eternal priesthood is now emerging from God's work according to Exodus 40. And then now there is an eternal kingdom according to 2 Samuel 7. We're bestowed by a God who is eternally merciful according to Psalm 111, giving His people eternal joy according to Isaiah 35.10. This God evidently is dealing with human beings in such a way that corresponds to something that is inside of us. We saw this last week as we saw that the seasons as they unfold are meant to point to the unchanging nature of God who is sovereign over the seasons such that, in summary, we see that God has evidently placed eternity into the hearts of His people. There's this sense in which you and I have, we are concerned with eternity. We have have this strange capacity and hunger for eternal things. Don't we? We, we We have a concern for the future, and we, we can't quite understand everything, but there's something in us that wants to. There's something in us that really wants to be a know-it-all. Not just for the attention that, that we get at the cocktail party, but like we want to be know-it-alls because we want to be God. We have something in us that is longing for more. And we have a sense about something that transcends our immediate situation. The Bible calls this the image or glory of God, the remnant of what life was like before sin began to destroy the earth. This glory is largely largely forfeited according to Romans 3.23, yet it is not obliterated according to 1 Corinthians 11.7 and even James 3.9. And our consciousness now of God is actually part of our nature. It's actually part of how God created us to be. And our suppression of it, that is to deny that consciousness, that hunger for something eternal, that desire to ignore that deep, deep longing in your soul and try to replace it with something temporal, something, some trinkets or some little gadgets or things that, that occupy and entertain and distract us temporarily is actually a suppression of God's very image. And it's part of our sinful nature, according to Romans 1, verse 18. Such that if God is sovereign in His disposal of or or governance over earthly events, and if God has a purpose, even, even in allowing some of these awful things to happen in us, even in justice, and He holds our ultimate destiny in our hands in spite of them, then the attitude of, according to Solomon here, a wise person... The picture of wisdom should be this joyful confidence in the pursuit of our earthly responsibilities and these pleasures that they bring in such a way that they are appetizers for the greater joy that God is bringing. So, in chapter 4, this is where it gets ugly. One, one commentarian at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 4 says it this way He says, From this point on in the book of Ecclesiastes, It is not easy to trace a clear consecutive argument. Now, that's harsh, okay, because I like to have an idea, a thing, that you walk away from listening to a sermon and go, that's what this was about. Unfortunately, for the rest of the book of Ecclesiastes, at least until chapter 10, verse 10, this starts to resemble the book of Proverbs, simply like a compilation of little anecdotes and little, little bits and pieces of wisdom, and little bits of advice that, that are gleaned from Solomon and his disciples. They're compiled together. And so this is going to be disjointed. But what I want to argue is that it's possible that some of this disjointedness actually is intentional. Sometimes these things that are laid side by side, that seem contradictory, are actually there for us to begin to, cont- begin to comp- contemplate a deeper meaning. So here's what we have this, according to Ecclesiastes, is what life is actually like. This is what life is actually like. And he wants to know, can you face life like it really is? Because there's only one way to do it. And if you face life apart from God, then sorrow and misery ensues. But if you face life with God, joy abounds. Now, most people below the age of, say, Four or five, depending on on that, uh, wouldn't quite understand this, right? If I told uh, a three, four, five-year-old, "Hey, life is meaningless. It's tough. It's difficult." That would kind of blow their minds, right? They would be like, "What? Things are awesome. Why? What do you mean life is difficult?" Um, and and there's there, there, I, I don't know when it starts, but let's say five, six, seven, ten. I don't know. Um, kind of a new season starts, and then you begin to realize, "Oh, this." This is, this is hard. This is difficult. Um, you, this is not as diff, this is not as easy as I was led to believe. And so here's what I want to invite you to think about. So maybe if you're in this room and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, maybe you wouldn't call yourself a believer a follower of Jesus. I'm I'm really glad you're here because I want you to begin to consider what it is that we who are Christians, really believe about who we are. And I want to invite you into a couple things that are packed in side by side. The first one is this. We saw this for the the theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Life under the sun is poof. It is fleeting. It's like like your breath in the winter. It's like, as I said last week, it's like the the air that fills the bag of chips. You were really excited about a bag of chips until you found out that it was mostly poof. It's a vapor, right? This, This is the kind of thing that we're invited to consider. In addition to that, we see that now we are called to take heart in the ultimate purpose, nearness, and timing of God. That even though things seem meaningless, that might actually be a gift of God to allow those things to fail such that we now have a deeper hunger for a deeper meaning. And the things that fall apart around us, not always, but majority of the time, might actually be God's grace in allowing us to have those idols fall apart. The way I describe this to you is that like, I hope my wife has despair every time she looks around her to find a suitable husband other than me. Like, I hope that she, she's like, I was looking for a decent husband and it was meaningless. It was a waste of time. All the guys around me are worthless. It's a waste of time. It is, it is a striving after the wind. Why? Why would I want that kind of despair for my wife? Why? Because I want her to find joy in me. And it would be wrong of me to, to hope that she might find like a good guy to take care of her. No, that's, that's wrong. That's, that's backward. That's completely upside down. And if you think that way and begin to understand that God might actually be doing the same thing, you'll come to find out that your greatest failures, your greatest disappointments, might be God's way of keeping you from having an idol and functionally cheating on his faithfulness. He might actually be giving you a gift. And that list of failures in your life and mine that came from pursuing something other than God might actually be his mercy and love for you. He might be happy to let that fail in order to find a deeper joy that he has created you to experience in him alone. In this chapter, we see piled in together that since the world is now full of trouble by reason of humanity's corporate and individual depravity, both are represented here in this chapter, the only solace can be found in genuine, deeply rooted community and the coming king. He, he piles it all together. He, he runs through these different topics together. You've got depravity. Then you've got the picture of oppression. Then you've got a picture of individual failures. And then you've got this picture just kind of dropped in there, starting in verse 9, of what a compelling and, and deeply rooted community looks like. And then you've got this hunger here for the king as he's reflecting on who will take over after him. And we're left with this deep void as the joy, it says, that they wanted in their king. They found no way to rejoice in them. So, first thing I want to invite you to consider is the first one. Let's talk about it. Depravity. This is uh, something we believe that that because of sin, and not just sin that you have committed, but like sin that's in your heart, we believe that like we need help. We need help. In fact, one of the most terrifying things that you might consider. We've discussed this at length elsewhere, so I don't want to go too much. But, like, one of the most terrifying things that you would consider is that God is good. For us to really believe God is good, like righteous and perfectly good, that might be one of the most terrifying things to consider. And the reason is this You are not. You are not. God is good and that actually should stir fear in us because one of the most devastating truths that you'll probably hide from most of your life is this, the problems out there. It's their fault. The evil in the world that's so devastating, it's out there and it's those people. They're the ones that are evil and you will miss the most powerful and painful truth that no one has betrayed you. No one has lied to you. No one has fooled you. No one has deceived you more than you. No one has failed in the clutch more than you. No one's been a greater disappointment than the pe- to the people around you than you. And so when we consider that God is good, it begins to help us to reflect on the fact that, as we see here in this text, we're not. Now, hang with me, that's that's actually the, the basis for good news. right? this This gives us freedom to stop striving. We saw this a couple chapters ago that that as Solomon tried to achieve his own enjoyment, he found out that, look, all the all the toil, all the things I could accomplish are a waste. Only what God does endures. So it's actually a good thing when the things that we do fail. But we, we when we consider the fact that things are not that good and it's actually our fault, then you begin to consider, What I think he's pointing at, the beginning of chapter one. I saw, again, that is kind of a repetitive, I was like, I I kept looking, I kept looking for good things. And he says, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. So here's what I think will happen. Oppressive structures like this should not shock us. Because if we are not that good, right? If we are depraved, and everyone seems to know something's broken. Everyone's trying to fix it with different things. And if we, if we can all admit that something is broken, and if we can begin to consider the possibility that we are depraved, we are, we are more evil than we think we are, then we should not be surprised by systemic depravity. Okay, so, so if we agree that there's at least something in you that's not a snowflake, it's not a princess, right? There's at least something in you that has a tendency to fail, that tends to be prideful and harmful towards other people. If you, if you can consider that at least there's something in you that, that is not that good, that is not God, then there's a possibility, just possible, that when you get around other people who are like you and not that great, bad things might ensue. So we don't believe if you put a bunch of sinners in the same room and call it the church, all of a sudden only good things happen. In fact, if you put a bunch of criminals in the same room, it's called organized crime. And so the same thing is true when we gather together as as sinful people, depraved I would say here, we should not be surprised when the product of our own efforts and our own organization is a systemic depravity. This is important. Now, he, he specifically directs us to think about the implications of politics here. And so I'm going to unapologetically be what most people would call political. The people who are in power tend to be the oppressors. And it's a difficult system because once you say, I'm going to change the system, you have to enter the system. And when you enter the system and you rise all the way to the top, you tend to be different than when you started. And there's a strange transformation that happens when you're given power. You become an oppressor. You do. You become an oppressor. And when you have authority and power, you tend to be an oppressor. Now, it is a failure to admit our own complicity here. And I want to be the first one to lead this. This is going to be difficult, okay? This is going to be really hard, and this is why. We live in the upper Midwest, a somewhat homogenous part of the world. We all tend to look and talk alike. And we tend to like that about the place that we live. And if I could just speak directly into that and speak from my own perspective, I have to admit that I am complicit in some of the most oppressive things that have happened in the course of the history of our country. I don't know if you noticed, I am a white male I come from a long line of white males who have taken their power and oppressed and crushed people with it. It's a long history. Whether we're talking about slavery based on racial differences, whether we're talking about the Native Americans, whether we're talking about immigrants and refugees, it tends to be my group of people in power and trying to protect at all costs that power. So you don't have to agree with me. You don't have to. I'm just going to admit this. I have privileges because of, of things I had, no, I had no power over. I didn't choose to be born this way. So I'm not trying to like incite some white guilt. I am trying to show you that it is at least possible that if depravity is a heart issue, then the systems we build will also be systemically depraved. This is a thing that Christians above all should be willing to admit and address. And I'll go first. I will go first. Um, I, I've, I've just because of uh, certain different things that God's blessed me with. There was times in my life where I wasn't, I wasn't always in the majority. I've lived in communities where, uh, the because of the color of my skin, I was actually in the minority. And something gracious really happened. The people, um, even though I was in the minority, they didn't treat me that way. They were really gracious. They didn't treat me and ostracize me. And I have a privilege. The way I would ask at this is, is, is this some, some people, and as this became clear, they pushed back on me in a way that I wanna push back on you. When you think about the part of town that you're most afraid to go in at a particular time of day, is that a small portion of your town? Is that a small window of time? Because if so, this is talking about you and me. Because if you've ever been oppressed, do you know the the part of town you want to avoid at all costs? Almost all of it. At almost every hour of the day. And we can come along there and say, well, you know, watch out for those people in that part of town at that time not realizing that that's how people under oppression feel about the rest of the town the rest of the time. You have a privilege and I have a privilege that that has been, I would say, for the most part, immune to this kind of systemic oppression. Now, I'm not promoting a political agenda here. I am telling you what, if you are willing to deny, will keep you from joy. And if you are in denial about some of these blessings, then you're probably trying to find your identity in them. You're probably currently really holding on tightly to that privilege and to that standing. And Solomon wants you to know, this will rob you of joy. You don't have to agree with me. I am just confessing my complicity in this. I I believe, if I read this right, I will, as being in the history of oppression, be an outspoken advocate for change. If that makes me some sort of label you don't like, I apologize, but I want to tell you that the tears of the oppressed often go unnoticed. And if you don't know what that feels like, that might be because it's your fault. At least a little. We talked about this before, right? When you talk with family, um, and you're like, everyone has like the, you know, crazy Uncle Larry. You know you know who crazy Uncle Larry is, right? So here's the thing. If you can't label crazy Uncle Larry in your family, you're probably crazy Uncle Larry. Like, you're that guy. And if you can't go like, oh, that's the person, then just, I, I love you, so I'm going to crack open your consciousness here. You're probably that guy. All right, we talked about this with siblings, and who's like the favorite among siblings, um, and I, you'll hear me say this a lot, if, if you're like, oh, there was no favorite in my family with my brothers and sisters, <laughs> you're the favorite. You just don't know. Everyone else knows. And so here's the thing. If you find yourself looking at this and going like, Who, who's oppressing? I, I, don't, I don't know what kind of oppression you're talking about. You're crazy Uncle Larry. You're probably the one. And if you don't know what it's like to be a victim of oppression, it's possible it's because it's your fault. You're at least complicit in it. And Solomon doesn't necessarily want you to jump into political activism here. He just wants you to admit it. He just wants you to be honest about the fact that there's some blessings you have that you don't deserve. So There we go. This is depravity. This is oppressive structures. We in the Midwest ought to be the most empathetic to this, because we are the first ones to recognize, wow, there's not a lot of diversity here. Thank God, I think that, God's really changing that, right? God's, there's, there's like a like hundred languages spoken in Sioux Falls to, to help us, I believe, fight this, to think seriously about what this looks like and what this feels like. Evidently, part of the glory of God that he will receive in eternity is that, he will receive the praise of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That's part of his, like, that's his plan. He's like, I made all these people different so that one day, despite how much they hate each other and oppress one another, they'll drop it, drop to their knees, and at the name of Jesus, as we read at the beginning here, they will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. And they have disagreed in their diversity for their entire lives, but on the other side of eternity, they will agree on the one thing that matters. And that evidently is the glory that God seeks to get from the nations. So, Christian, let's start sharing that glory now. Let's start getting a taste of it now. Please not wait till the other side of the grave to celebrate God's glory in the nations. Now, this oppression and these structures of oppression, the sinful structures that seem to address them, will keep us thinking, they'll keep us thinking that maybe we ought to cure them or we ought to do something. Now, let's let's Keep, keep in here. Hang with me. He's got something to say to that. So then he immediately interjects something, a list of four different things that are pretty powerful. And they're right next to this systemic oppression. This view of oppression is set right alongside for individual. Like so, so corporate depravity is pictured here in oppression over the oppressors. There's no sympathy for those who are oppressed. But then he relates them directly to four individual things. So corporate and individual depravity are kind of locked in here together, right? So these individual pursuits that are barriers here now to, in, to real community, that the community that we get a picture of in verse 9 can be found in verse 4 through 8. So let's run through them. First one, envy. You see right there, to begin in verse 4, I mean, I, I, you got to love how he got there, right? He's like, I, I mean, it's, this is Valentine's Day week, uh, so... If you're the kind of person that likes to write your own Valentine's Day card, Ecclesiastes chapter 4 has a lot of good content for you. Hey, darling, I saw that people are already dead or even more fortunate than living or still alive. In fact, it's better for the person who's never been born and has never seen evil that's done under the sun. Open the card. All right? We're not done yet. Hang with me. Open the card. Hey, two are better than one. Hey, if two lie together, they keep each other warm. Right? You get this? Right next to each other. And there seems to be some barriers from getting from one to the other. One minute he's like, everything's awful, everything's, everyone's oppressed, there's no sympathy for those who are oppressed. And then he's like, hey man, if we could just hang out, two or three people get together, it's going to be great. And so in between, sandwiched in there, he talks about some individual barriers, beginning in verse 4, he says, Then I saw all the toil and skill in work that actually come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This is what we talk about in terms of idolatry, right? We said that the the key idols uh, in our heart in American culture are control, approval, and comfort. And the truth is that most of the things that you and I do, most of the things we spend money on or invest our time and energy in, are in order to secure one or more of those three things. Um, The way that you'll hear us say like it's like we'll go into debt to buy things we don't need to impress people we don't even like. And, and this is our lot. This is how this idolatry, this worship of something other than God, plays out. We, we, we pursue these things as much as we possibly can. And it's apparently out of a desire to just either get what someone else has or to compare yourself to them. And he says, this is envy. Um, this envy is vanity, it's striving after the wind. He says that, in fact, most of the things that you do are built on the assumption that you deserve something more than the people around you. You get that? You get that depravity thing again? Remember that? Remember that? This fundamental assumption that we, who call ourselves Christians, believe is that the greatest need of our our own soul is in our own heart. Like the greatest evil that exists is in our own heart and we need help. We need someone to restore us and fix us. And the greatest thing that is after us is in our own heart, which is in a stark contrast to what our culture believes. Our culture believes that what's wrong is out there. What's wrong is something that someone else did to you, and the solution now is, you've heard the phrase, you need to find yourself, or you need to express yourself. right? You need to be yourself. And there's this picture in which our culture uh, is saying, like, the problem's out there, the solution's in you. If you would just, just just, be you, and be you loudly and powerfully, and regardless of what anyone else is saying, don't, don't let those oppressors stop you from being yourself. And again, babe the pig. Always want to hashtag babe the pig, okay? Babe, pig, sheepdog. Not really a sheepdog, right? Just watch children's movies, you'll see where this comes from. I want you to see, this is a, this is a stark contrast to what our culture tends to believe to be true, that the problem's out there and the solution is in you. You can fix it, work harder, do better. You can do it, I believe in you, right? Whereas what we see here evidently is that in fact what's broken is inside of you and even the good things you do, the toil and the skill that you show often come from a person's desire to just get at someone else. So Here's the way you think about this. Are you good at celebrating other, pre- other people's victories? I mean, do you get excited when someone gets the thing that you wanted? Or do you secretly wish that you could get it? Because if you think that you deserve these things and you're entitled to these things, then you will miss the joy that's being presented here. Envy will rob you. It will rob you of joy. And it will leave you, according to verse 4, in a place that is like striving after the wind. Because the hardest thing that you have to admit when you're chasing other people's stuff is that you can never get it. It's always something new, never works. Verse 5, we see the second thing. Not just envy, but laziness. It says, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. So he puts side by side a picture of laziness that that folds his own hands is is quoted two times in the book of Proverbs. That a person folds their hands, rests, and and basically just does nothing. And it's a picture of laziness. So the idea of folding your hands is just like doing nothing. So he says, a fool just does nothing, and then thereby, basically he says, eats his own flesh. What? A, it's a pretty graphic picture of the kind of self-destruction that's going on here. So he sets side by side laziness and self-destruction. Uh, I've noticed some really helpful tips here. I'll give you at least four that might be able to reveal laziness and maybe even see, I hope, how it might be self-destructive. Uh, one... Theologian named Andrew Wilson says it this way. He says, sometimes we work long hours because we are lazy. And these four obstacles to overcome, distraction, busyness, avoidance, and then I would just say, call it posing. Pretending like you're busy. Pretending like you're working hard. See, laziness can manisfe- manifest itself as, in the most powerful way in our culture, as distraction you're typically lazy in the things that you're inefficient on because you instead of doing the thing you what you're supposed to do you and remaining focused on the task at hand, you get preoccupied with other things right this is again, this is the worst for this. This will rob you of a sense of joy and accomplishment in the world and evidently, if we're not careful, this will cause us to eat our own flesh, to destroy ourselves by entertaining and distracting ourselves, evidently we are eating ourselves, killing ourselves. And so what, what we tend to do is that we we kind of like, we, we chat, we do personal administration, we're on social media, we're all these things, we're kind of flying through, not staying at any one thing for more than a couple seconds at a time because we're entertaining and distracting ourselves to death. And then, then there becomes like a badge of honor that you're working long hours. And this is what Wilson suggests. It's possible that Given the choice between working hard and efficiently for 8 hours and working inefficiently and lazily for 11, many of us would take 11. And it looks like you're working hard, but you're actually being lazy. You might be destroying yourself. The second way that laziness manifests itself is in busyness. If you let others set your agenda for you rather than doing what you know is right, either because you're disorganized or distracted, or maybe because you're fearful of confrontation and you just do what everyone else says, you'll find yourself doing a lot of tasks that Solomon is happy to call meaningless. And you work really hard and brag about how busy you are. And and you miss the fact that you just confess how inefficient you really are. I'm just so busy. Okay, well, I mean, what do you want us to say? In 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 our particular society, that's like a... It's like a pat on the back, isn't it? It's a badge of honor. I'm really busy. Therefore, I am really important. What if the next time people said, I'm just really busy, what if we just said, hey, get your life together? Like, what if you just literally said, hey, how about you stop being lazy and manage your time better? Get it? It starts feeling crazy, doesn't it? No, no, the problem's out there. Uh, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe the problem is out there. Maybe it's you, right? This, this is what we're invited to consider. One of the other fruit of laziness, I think, is the way that if, if you do a bunch of stuff poorly without any motivation, rather than to do fewer things with excellence and drive, you, you, might be, you might be in this. If you do a lot of stuff really poorly, if you find yourself flying through it, rather than doing a few things with excellence, I'm going to quote First Corinthians, whatever you do, whether you eat, what you drink, do all for the glory of God, whatever you find to do, do as unto the Lord. The third thing I think, laziness manifests itself, this form of eating ourselves, destroying ourselves, as avoidance of genuinely hard work in favor of work that looks difficult but's actually easier. This stings me. Um, and I'll admit it. In the course of work, there's structure, discipline and order.. Uh, and in the course of being a father with my children, there's none of those things. Like, it's, it's chaos. And if we're not careful, we will avoid the most important things of loving, messy people that God's put around us in favor of just working and hiding from that messiness because we like the control and structure. Maybe it's not you. Maybe, that, maybe, maybe that's not you, but, but I know that tendency in myself. And I'll gravitate toward things that look difficult, like working really hard and putting on a lot of hours, when in reality, the real difficulty is discipling the heart of a child. <laughs> I mean, in the grand scheme of things, 90 hour work week, that's easy. Training up a child and the way that they should go so that when they grow old, they will not depart. Whoa. Maybe it's just me, but that's what laziness can look like. The last thing is avoidance of actual circumstances, and I'll just kind of begin to wrap up on this, kind of compare it to the self destructive nature of this. It says, uh, he talks about avoidance of genuinely hard work, but I I would also say, is there a place, a thing, an event that you are habitually late to? Now, this is going to hurt. I'll try not to make any eye contact with anybody in the room, uh, because this might be that place, and this might be that thing, and I love you enough to say you might be destroying yourself. What are the things that you're always late to, because implicitly you know you don't want to be there? Where do you tend to lurk in the back and stay aloof and disconnected? Where do you find yourself kind of hanging back and trying to observe everyone else because you're a better than and above them? Because for some of you, that may be a difficult question, especially in light of the last hour and 15 minutes, hour and five for some of you. So, <laughs> I'm looking down, i look not looking at anybody. That's why I sit in the front and I worship facing this way because I, I don't need that. I love you, okay? I'm late to things too. I'm not talking about like, I mean, oh, circumstances arise. I mean, mean, we had this, I I don't know, like children will do this, just blow up your schedule. I'm, I'm not talking about like conceivable things that come out of nowhere and seem to like derail you. I got it. Those things happen, okay? Babies like to throw up or blow up their diaper right when you need to be somewhere, okay? Right? And the lights never work when like you need to be, this is what happens, okay? Drama always happens right when you need to get where you're going. Now, here's, here's what I want you to consider. Is there something that always seems to happen to In fact, would you be so brave as to ask the people around you, hey, is there something I tend to just avoid? Is there a circumstance in which I just check out? Because that may be a form of self-destruction. You're just folding your hands and going along. What you're communicating here is that you don't really want to be a part of it. What you're communicating is is that you really don't want to do it. And so hear what I would tell you. like, Do everyone a favor. Either do it with excellence for the glory of God or stop. Do something else. The thing that you can do with excellence and vigor and drive because you know God has created you and crafted you to do it, do it! Do it with, with intensity. And all the other stuff that you're just dragging along doing poorly... Is it possible that we might have something to confess and repent of here? Is it possible that we are, in effect, eating our own flesh? We're devouring and destroying ourselves by this kind of idleness. The last thing this seems to imply is that there's a self-destructive behavior that reveals an idol. So I'm careful how I address this, but like, uh, what's the thing you'll risk your life to do? And it might reveal an idol. Now, I wanted to show a picture here. There was a time in my life where I had a really fast motorcycle, and it was really cool uh, to do wheelies, like 80 miles an hour on the interstate. A really cool, pass, like, uh, pass, especially like past school buses, because then all the kids ah! go, Okay? And, 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 and there's something out there. Like, what do you risk your life for? Because what I was risking my life for, in fact, I, w- I was going to show you a picture, but I would just keep doing it, and so the people would think I, would, I was cool. And I was willing to be daring for the sake of someone thinking I'm cool. So what do you risk your life for? What are you after? What are the things you're destroying your own body and life to achieve? Do you smoke a lot? What are you risking your life for? Do you tend to drink too much? Why are you doing that? Why are you destroying? What are you risking? your life? What do you really want? Do you tend to be dangerous and be a, a risk to the people around you because of your lack of discipline or your lack of self-awareness? What are you after? Why do you do the big jump on the snowboard, right? Why do, you do, why, why do you speed everywhere? Why do you intentionally put yourself at risk? Whatever this may be for you. And as you ask yourself this question, you might begin to think like, wow, I'm really, it's possible that, that I'm, I'm worshiping and trying to achieve something under the sun that will leave me destroying my own self. Third thing he says is that better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and striving after the wind. The best way I can say this is this, this kind of discontentment that exists. I saw this a while back. I don't know if you remember this in 2014. Uh, Some of you will love this. Um, Some of you are Minecraft people. You know who you are, okay? God help you, right? Minecraft founder Marcus Pearson, also known as Notch, in a strangely revealing series of announcements and tweets in 2015, kind of revealed this to us. You see, he sold in 2014 Minecraft to Microsoft for $2.5 billion. And he looked like he was having a blast. You can Google this guy. He was like living the life. He bought a $70 million mansion, okay? He built a massive wall of candy, like he built candy dispensers across the entirety of one wall so he got have candy whenever he wanted and he started hosting wild parties in which all sorts of all sorts of celebrities started showing up time out does that sound familiar have we have we, is it possible that we've covered something like this specifically talking about Solomon just wondering okay so this guy he he does this thing and and this starts tweeting these things he says the problem with getting everything is that you run out of reasons to keep trying Human interaction becomes impossible due to the imbalance. This is a man who got everything he wanted. He says, I'm hanging out in this fancy place with a bunch of my friends and partying with famous people, able to do whatever I want, and I've never felt more isolated. Another one he tweeted out, he says, when we sold the company... The biggest effort went into making sure that the employees got taken care of. And they all hate me now. You feel like despair? He makes a reference to Elon Musk. He says, "I would musk and try to save the world, but that just exposes me to the same types of blankety blanks that made me sell Minecraft anyway." Catch that? He didn't want to do anything worthwhile because he was afraid of the people he would have to encounter. This is the most powerful one. I found a great girl, but she's afraid of me and my lifestyle and went with a normal person instead. Is it possible these tendencies in us are the greatest hindrance from verse 9 through 12? This picture of community this picture of people huddling together to keep warm, this picture of, of what it looks like when we say pity is the one who falls and has no one to pick him up. He leaves us with this last thought. He says, in the end, he starts to reflect personally, either about his own you know, passing on the king, his kingship to his son who ends up splitting the kingdom. Or we can't tell if he's reflecting on himself and his father David or if he's reflecting on the next king And he gives us this weird thing. He says, there's no end of all these people and they all need to be led. Yet those who come later, he's talking about these people and the king that will take over when he dies. He says, yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. So surely all this is vanity and a striving after the wind. Solomon paints a picture of someone who will come and take over take his place, and maybe strive for the same kinds of things that he was striving for, maybe fail in the same place, maybe, su- maybe succeed in some of the same places. And yet the quote that we're left with, as Solomon contemplates what will happen after he leaves, is yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. That, that, that is, they will not rejoice in this king. You see, because of their laziness, because of their self-destructiveness, because of their envy, because of their discontentment, the kings that will come after will not measure up. Why would he say such a thing? Why would he leave us with such despair over political figures that they won't measure up and solve our problems? It may be because of this, because he wants to stir up your appetite for a king that will succeed where every other king from Solomon on has failed he wants to stir up your appetite for a king that doesn't oppress and he has divine in all authority and power and and you know what he He doesn't hurt people with it you know what he does he lays down his life And his kingdom's upside down. And the greatest ones in his kingdom are the ones that will be the slaves of all, the ones that will be the servants. And he didn't come to steal or destroy. This king came and he turned the kingdom upside down so that he would die in those people's place. He became the oppressed. He became the political and cultural outcast. Died on a tree out by the trash so that no one would be mistaken about how, how rejected and how unwelcome this king was. This king became oppressed and unwelcome so that you and I would only know joy and inclusion. He died a cold and lonely, abandoned death on an old, rugged cross so that you and I would sing that two are better than one and now we can keep one another warm. This king has succeeded where every other king has failed. This king didn't seek his own destruction or envy, but in fact, this king, as we read earlier, while being equal with the Father, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he emptied himself of his divine glory and took the form of a servant and died. Not just a normal death, but a death on an old rugged cross so that one day, at the name of this king, every tongue will confess and rejoice on how good he is. Is it possible that the present things that are falling apart are meant to serve as an appetizer for the joy that God means to give us in this one king in whom all will rejoice? Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. We thank you especially in that we do not deserve it. God, is a, it is a difficult and humbling thing to consider um, that the evil that exists in the world that's so difficult to deal with isn't actually out there, but it's in, inside our own hearts and our own souls. Would you help us in these moments to begin to reflect upon and think about the ways that you have granted a grace to us in Jesus Christ that we do not deserve? If we were honest, we we tend to operate out of envy. We we operate out of discontentment. We we operate in a way that's self-destructive and lazy. We operate in a way that doesn't endear people to us, but it actually keeps us distant from those around us. Would you begin now to give us a taste for what it might look like for us to relinquish those things, to begin to confess those things for what they are and to admit them and to allow people into close enough proximity that they might see them. They might love us and care for us. That we would huddle together around this good news to keep warm. God, we read, pity the man who falls and has no one to pick him up. God, we know the good news of this is that we have fallen and we live in a fallen world but there is no pity for us. There is joy because there is one who came to take our place and pick us up. Would you begin to transform our hearts such that now we don't distance ourselves from people, but instead we see this redeeming work of Christ, this reconciliation of Christ, and we begin to reject the oppressive and envious and selfish desires that are welling up in our own hearts, that we would be softened by your grace to love and care for and experience a divinely inspired community that anticipates a coming of a greater king. You can do this, Lord, we cannot. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.